Hello, and welcome to Here Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. My name's Ash, and since it's officially fringe season here, I thought it only fitting to discuss a man who was shouting unwanted poetry at you in the streets of Edinburgh 70 years before someone turned that concept into a tourist board's wet dream. William McGonagall has gone down in history as the worst poet of all time. Today I'll be talking a little about McGonagall's life and reading from a selection of his poems, particularly his devotional poems he wrote to this fair city of Edinburgh. Adams had the cheek to go work at some book festival throughout August, so is presumably keeping David Walliams sweet with jelly babies and keeping Caroline Duffy off the plonk. But luckily for me, my girlfriend Bella jumped in to chat about McGonagall because she is almost as experienced as Adam in having me recite rubbish poetry at her. Topaz. No. Yeah. His middle name was Topaz McGonagall. Why? Good question. I have no idea why his middle name is Topaz, but he he uses it after he becomes known as the poet of the White Elephant. And what was the White Elephant? Uh, Someone pretending to be from Burma uh, sent him a letter saying, I want to make you the poet of the White Elephant. It was a hoax. It was a total hoax, but he just just embraced it. Um, It's a joke. Something that's so expensive that it, it, it... doesn't it sort of bankrupt you? Yeah. Like somebody's white elephant is like their project that never happens. Yeah. It's so, it, it doesn't fit with the rest of his name at all. No, I think it p- fits perfectly. William Topaz McGonagall. <laughs> yeah. Because McGonagall. That's like being called something like Ronald Biryani Stout. <laughs> no, I think it's perfect. It's like the, a gem does... If there, if, if there is no sort of quality in his work, at least there's a gem in his name. Well, he did, he did call his published versus poetic gems, <laughs> volume one of to which he two. is one himself. He clearly is, yeah. So anyway, he's got the reputation of being the worst poet of all time. Right. Stephen Pyle said that he became a poet by combining a minimal feel for the English language with a total lack of self-awareness and nil powers of observation. <laughs> Um, Alan Bold described him as totally indifferent to euphony absolutely ignorant of imagery quite unaware of the possibilities of verbal texture unconcerned with the seductive power of rhythm McGonagall was a narrative poet who constructed all his poems to a simple formula all the lines had to be linked by obvious and emphatic rhymes and it's just so does he tend to list it's a total list and he loves very specific dates so whole poems will start. Is it because a lot of numbers end in an E sound? Um, Actually, no, only three does. <laughs> but three pops up a lot. Um, I but actually can't think of any other numbers that have good rhymes. Two. Two has pretty good rhymes. <laughs> Eight. Uh, teen. Teen is good. Oh, teen. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, just one last description. James Leatham said he was a poet of unique badness who sang, sang like a corncrake. What does a corncrake sound like? <laughs> so he's a, he's a poet in the time of... of um, Tennyson. He was an amateur actor and weaver um, for most of his life. Well, I don't know how long he was an amateur actor. A weaver of what? Poems. Not tales for a while. 
And where was he from? Well, good question, because he said he was born in Edinburgh. Yeah, either... either Unconfirmed. True or contrived. Yeah. Fictionalised place of birth, possible year of birth. Some, some say 1825, some say 1830. So already a good start for a poet, like mysterious birth circumstances. Yeah, he wrote an autobiography. I think he wrote two autobiographies, actually. Would you like to hear the opening line of his autobiography? Go on. My dear readers of this autobiography, which I am the author of. No. <laughs> no. I Is beg that... leave to inform you that I was born in Edinburgh. I thought he had something to do with Dundee. Yeah, well, he lived in Dundee for a while. He also lived in Fife, I think. He definitely says in 1877, that is when he got his big poetic uh, inspiration. inspiration. I remember how I felt when I received the spirit of poetry. It was in the year of 1877 and in the month of June, when trees and flowers were in full bloom. Well, it being the holiday week in Dundee, I was sitting in my back room in Peyton's Lane, Dundee, lamenting to myself because I couldn't get to the Highlands on holiday to see the beautiful scenery, when all of a sudden my body got inflamed, and instantly I was seized with a strong desire to write poetry. So strong, in fact, that in imagination I thought I heard a voice crying in my ears, Write! Write! I wondered what could be the matter with me, and began to walk backwards and forwards in a great fit of excitement, saying to myself, I know nothing about poetry. But still the voice kept ringing in my ears, Right, right, until at last, being overcome with a desire to write poetry, I found paper, pen and ink, and in a state of frenzy, sat me down to think what would be my first subject for a poem. So, and that's him getting inflamed. That, yeah, he's getting pretty inflamed. Um, the, uh, the first poem he writes is for a uh, reverend. And where, did, where was that written? How do we know that? Uh, 1877. And it was published in a, in a paper saying tribute to the reverend. He also wrote one dedicated to a reverend who drowned. What um, is he with I don't know, but he, he has was an obsession. Probably. Um, Irish. But but his um, the spirit of poetry, it sounds quite sort of um, classical, doesn't it? He was all about abstinence. Quite a lot of his poems were about abstinence. He went into pubs and re- um, recited po- poems about temperance oh. and told people about the evils of drink, which I think became quite popular because they were so shit that quite drunk people quite enjoyed <laughs> listening to him um, recite them. But, uh, yeah, he, he wrote one about a reverend who drowned. Did he witness the drowning? No, basically he saw it in the newspaper and then pretty much wrote again the Thought. article but made it rhyme. <laughs> I, I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll just write... Literally, some, a lot of his poems are just current events with a rhyme scheme. What's missing from this death is a rhyme scheme. <laughs> um, I have to read you the one about the funeral of Tennyson because that's absolutely hilarious. Tragic. He seems quite death-focused. Yeah, well, okay, I've just looked up. There's a website dedicated to his honour um, and under a page called Deaths and Funerals says, if he's most famous for poems about mass death and disaster, the deaths of individuals move McGonagall just as much. Funerals were a pretty constant part of life and high levels of mortality throughout d- through disease meant that Victorian Britons might find themselves unexpectedly in mourning at any time. <laughs> unexpectedly dead. Unexpectedly <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wasn't expecting that. Um, so a series of poems uh, 
the tragic de- death of the Reverend A.H. Uh, McConaughey, the funeral of the late Prince Henry of Battenberg, the funeral <laughs> of the late ex-provost Ruff, comma, Dundee, the funeral of the German Emperor, the death of the Reverend Dr. Wilson. Yeah, a lot of reference. Yeah. The death of Prince Leopold, the death of Lord and Lady uh, Dalhousie, the death of John Brown, the death of Fred Marsden, the American playwright, the death of Captain Webb, the burial of Mr. of the Reverend George uh, Gilfillian, or no, or Gilfillan, the burial of Mr. Gladstone, uh, drowning of Reverend William Horn. That's the one we're going to read. <laughs> it sounds like he stepped up his game and it's gone from death I to burial. Made it a bit sexy. Oh, it's a drowning. It, let's just drown him. Twas the year of eighteen eighty-eight, and on August of the first day, the Reverend William Horn was drowned (brackets) while bathing in Scarborough Bay. <laughs> There seems to be that, that that sort of addition thing of uh, we'll just add on a line and that, that bit will rhyme. Uh, and that place is considered to be a very dangerous spot. And by his church members, his sad fate won't be forgot. Oh, God. Oof. Uh, he was observed to be in distress by a gentleman nearby. So to save him from being drowned, he resolved to try. Then to him, he boldly swam and kept him afloat. Until the arrival of the safety boat. Oh, I thought it was meant to go rhyme with swam. Yeah, it's often it seems like you're waiting for a different rhyme and he goes, oh no, he really is holding out for that one. Oh no. Like some of the lines go out quite far to but see, as it were. So far, it sounds very modern. Why is that? Uh, maybe because modern poetry is shit. <laughs> Apart from that. And into the boat, the unfortunate reverend gentleman was laid. And when he landed, every attention to him was paid. The usual restoratives were medically applied by Dr. J.W. Taylor, but in a short time he died. No, no it's also like a comedy. Yeah, I know. Well, a lot of people suggested that um, because it was so bad, it was maybe a ruse. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's it's one of those Kaufman-esque ruses, like, would someone really spend their whole lives... Just doing... Just doing this. Sort of parody. Yeah. The reverend gentleman was a powerful swimmer, it is said. That's all one line of poetry, by the but way. But then that's the thing. He, 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 there seems to be a lot of this kind of like adding on yeah. of extra sentences that have easy rhymes. I think it's because Rather reverend's than, not good. Yeah, or yeah. like powerful swimmer. Powerful swimmer. <laughs> not a good rhyme. So, yeah. <laughs> the reverend gentleman was a powerful swimmer, it is said. And had bathed at dangerous places where other swimmers were afraid. So I think afraid. say l s a i d a f r a i d said said afraid. Later we'll see. There's there's quite a few um, sorrow with Edinburgh. Oh, I see. Ya. Um, just for instance, in St Andrew's Bay, but many times he bathed there without dismay. <laughs> Without dismay being... Dismay sounds like quite a small way of describing Death. drowning. <laughs> but the more he escaped there, his time wasn't come. But at Scarborough, he's been drowned. So, <laughs> so heaven's will be done. Heaven. Oh, the will of heaven. So, yeah. Um, which, alas, kind Christians, I'm sorry to relate that the reverend gentleman has met with such a fate. Sort of fannying all of that doesn't it doesn't doesn't push the story on does it but yeah it doesn't really get him anywhere that's what i was think, wondering about those lines like it can be said yeah this next line will get your hopes up for some really audacious rhyming <laughs> because the line is the reverend william horn was a native of dumferlin oh and 
and in the office of a linen manufacturer there, an apprentice he did begin. Oh. <laughs> begin. Begin. Dunfermline. Dunfermline. Bergen. There, an apprentice he did Bergen. And he also managed to get linen manufacturer. Uh, yeah, linen manufacturer. Um, and he was remarkable for his studious habits in search of knowledge. And accordingly, he was sent to, can you guess? Um, Borridge? St. Andrew's College. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he soon carried off a prize offered by the late Mr. John Stuart Mill. Oh, no. <laughs> particularly in metaphysics and philosophic skill. It, it, I still, I still, it can go still. Sort of, yeah. That's one of his better ones. And for the best essay on the principle of inseparable association. <laughs> no. He also received £100 for an essay on scripture revelation. It all sounds like unfortunate coincidence. Yeah. A rhyme rather than somebody... Than someone <laughs> than deliberate. <writing>. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Horn was also a minister of Lindsay Street Congregational Church, Dundee. (laughs) (laughs) He should stop. One word into that four-word sort of molehill. Yeah. Oh, remember molehills. We're coming to some molehills. And for a period of five years, he acted most faithfully. No. That was the Dundee rhyme. No, with Dundee. Um, There's another two pages of this. I'm going to just skip to the last verse. It really does feel as though... Especially with this theme of the death that he keeps returning to. Yeah. It does sound as though he has felt called to this and duty is sort of, the rhymes are being kind of wrought out of him. Yeah, it's almost like someone who's <laughs> been, you know, it's a relative who once took uh, said, English at GCSE and someone said, can you just write something for the funeral? Please, can we just have... Because no one else is bothered. Yeah, you do the eulogy. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. It's really resentfully written a poem. Come on, we're gonna go. Uh, last verse of this and mr george paish p-a-i-s-h paish Paish. this is the rest the would-be rescuer and mr george paish that swam out to him for his gallantry ought to be rewarded which i consider no sin because if he hadn't swam out his body might never have been found and for such gallantry he deserves no less than a hundred pound Oh, really? <laughs> that's the last, last, now, last verse. Now it starts to sound like Paish, Paish, Paish. I paid him. Yeah. <laughs> Could you just get in? That I've... <laughs> that I, I, I did make sure that I didn't just find the body. I was trying to save him. Anywhere between 50 and 100. Yeah, so his most famous one is about the collapse of the um, the bridge on the River Tay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He'd written, was it with a train going over it? Yeah, a train just collapsed. Yeah. About 75 people were just drowned. Plummeted. Yeah. Um, he'd already written one about the River Tay. and <laughs> I bet he was rubbing his hands together. Yeah. Well, not he... one, not two. <laughs> Actually, it must have been because he wrote, he wrote one of, um, about the River Tay and it starts with, oh, beautiful bridge over the Silvery Tay. The Silvery Tay, is, yes, yeah, I've heard that. Which is his... His style and all of it. Um, so that's this not, is this that's is, not that bad. Though, it's not too bad. No, silvery tay. Although, do are we just do we just get indoctrinated <laughs> by the, how awful the rest <laughs> of it is that silvery just, tay suddenly impresses us? Any noun and adjective alone and not rhyming sounds yeah. good. <laughs> so his earlier poem um, goes: the beautiful railway bridge of the silvery tay. 
I hope that this is one particular verse that I've picked out. Yeah. I hope that God will protect all passengers by night and by day and that no accident will befall them while crossing the bridge of the Silvery Tay. So he'd written this years before and then he wrote his big really? famous disaster one. Yeah, and he said that that one... Had he been eyeing up the bridge? <laughs> or maybe it was an inside job and he, he rigged the bridge. He rigged the Tay. Uh, in the name of poetry. <laughs> um, poetry. Poetry. But yeah, his that one he he described as being his his big hit, the one that brought him universal acclaim. Wait, which one? The train crash? No, no, the... the one the one before, just about how beautiful. Oh, he's very literal. Oh God, There's... yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll read you some of his geographical ones. You'll get a sense of how literal he is. So I'm just going to read you the first and last verse. First, first, it, which is it kind of works, but if you're used to it, you can see his his pattern. Beautiful w- railway bridge of the Silvery Tay. <laughs> Alas, I am very sorry to say that 90 lives have been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. No. It goes on to detail exactly what happened in the crash in an one, two, three, four, five, six more verses. I'm just going to read you the seventh. Um... I must now conclude my lay by telling the world fearlessly without the least dismay that your central girders would not have given way, at least many sensible men do say, had they been supported on each side with buttresses, at least many sensible men confesses. Don't think too much about that. Uh, For the stronger we our houses do build, the less chance we have of being killed. (laughs) No. Yeah. Yeah, that's it how is, it is. As though he he um, is sort of pushing a cart of poetry in front of him, and he sort of tosses something out, and then goes, "Oh, something to match." Oh yeah, that'll do. <laughs> and uh, he has to lay it down in front of him. Oh, I didn't tell you about his uh, acting thing. Oh. So he ended up. Um, he described himself as a tragedian um, before a poet, and he ended up in a production of Macbeth where he felt like the person playing Macduff was taking the piss out of him. So he just refused to die. Um, so when Macduff came to kill in him... Li- live? Yeah, live. Uh, and he just won the audience over, which is sort of... is a in pattern. refusal. Yeah, yeah, in a pattern throughout the rest of his life, really. He just um, won them over from how shit he was being. So a Macbeth that just refused to get killed... <laughs> Um, the audience just loved it because Macduff was obviously struggling. Which would suggest that all of his poems delighting in, well, not delighting, but um, cataloguing other people's deaths are quite an ego trip. Yeah, yeah. Also, he's a he's a weaver, he's deluded, and he is a Shakespearean. He is bottom. <laughs> yeah. He is, <laughs> he is. Literally is bottom. It, Shakespeare was the only poet he thought was better than he was. Really? And like, what did he say about him? Uh, he wrote a very, very dull article on him that I read, tried to make notes from, and realised he said absolutely nothing. Unfortunately, he didn't even say anything that funny. Um, it's so dull. Yeah. Um, like I say, there's this website that's dedicated to William McGonagall. Um, if you find any of this entertaining, I recommend you go and search it out. That His article is on there. Lots of articles about him is on there. His whole autobiography, because it's only about like seven pages long. So, so were people there. buying his things, and that's why we still have them? Uh, so he became quite broke as soon as he gave up on the weaving and started on the poetry. Um, <laughs> what did he even weave? Uh, yeah, don't know. Baskets? Uh, wait, it's surprising that he was a, 
he was quite successful as a weaver because this is industrial revolution sort of time. But, Weavers but, are getting knocked out of business. But are there, aren't there lots of kinds of weavers? I think he was non-industrial. <laughs> non- <laughs> it's a private weaver. Uh, sort unlike, of weaver who'd come round, you know. Unlike his poetry. <laughs> unlike his poetry, yeah, he was very industrial. He was an industrial poet. <laughs> So yeah, he starts writing poetry at 50-odd, 1877. Uh, it's very quixotic. Like, he deci- he has this... He suddenly struck, like, I'm going to be a poet from now on. In kind of late life. Especially late life from those times. Yeah. Um, he decides he needs a patron. And so he writes to Queen Victoria. <laughs> no. Saying, will you be my patron? <laughs> um, the Can a woman be a patron? Oh, yeah, if she's a queen. Or isn't it a matron? I mean, <laughs> I, well, I don't know. Maybe it should be. Yeah. Will you be my matron? I need changing now. Come quick. <laughs> That's what everyone else was shouting. Yeah. Um, so he writes this letter to Buckingham Palace. He gets a response from a very. He gets pal- a response. Yeah, he gets a very. Can you imagine? Like if someone wrote now saying, "I volunteer to be the poet of the Queen." Can you imagine Buckingham Palace replying, "Go, thank you very much for your interest in the Queen." <laughs> Applications are now closed? Yeah. Basically, that's what they read to him. They said, thank you very much for your interest, but no. Uh, And this gave him a huge burst of of, um, energy and renewed faith in his talents. Faith? Yeah, yeah. And he used to show this letter around saying, see, I'm on a radar. (laughs) Um, And so in 1878, he walked 60 miles from Dundee to Balmoral Castle. Yeah. Yeah. over mountains and through thunderstorms to perform. Is that a line from his poetry? No, no, literally that's what he did. (laughs) He wouldn't have ever said something that made as much sense as through over mountains and through thunderstorms. (laughs) It would be something like, I travelled over mountains, thunderstorms and rain, they fell in fountains. (laughs) He'd make sure to slow that right down. Right down, yeah. Um, But he he travelled to perform for Queen Victoria Arrived at the gates. Invited or not? No, completely uninvited. <laughs> um, arrived at the gates and declared to the guards that I am the Queen's poet. <sighs> and they responded, no, you're not. Tennyson is. Oh. And they just he just sent him away. And he walked back. I guess through... he just walked back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Through rain. Yeah. Through Over mountains and through thunderstorms. <laughs> back to Dundee. Yeah. Which brings me to Tennyson because he is the big poet of the age. Uh, and one of so my did before that did would somebody like McGonagall have known of Tennyson? Oh yeah, he um, he definitely knew of Tennyson. He wrote one of his favourite um, death poems. Death poems about <laughs> oh, he did? Tennyson. Yeah, oh. I'm going to just read you. I am going to skip out some verses, yeah. but I just wanted you to focus on how quickly he goes from a kind of over, a macro to a micro view. Like his eye for detail is irrepressible it seems (laughs) like why fit things into a sentence well when you can just put them all in so the first verse is alas rather like the bridge (laughs) alas england now mourns for her poet that's gone the late and good lord tennyson oh i hope his soul has fled to heaven above where there is everlasting joy and love so, I mean, that's not bad. He goes on to say, you know, he wrote some fine po- pieces of poetry, believed in the Bible, also in Shakespeare. Skippity, skippity, skip. Then he goes into a detail of the actual funeral. This is still in verse, just in case the first line throws you off. The pallbearers on the right of the coffin were Mr. W.E. H. Leckie and <laughs> Professor Butler, Master of Trinity and the Earl of Roseberry. 
no. It, this sounds like he's be, he's been given, like he's writing in a in I don't know. He's been given a column that he's only got so much space in. Yeah. And he just writes until he gets to the end, and then is knocked on to the next line. Yeah, but for going. some reason he's like he's budgeted by the actual line. Like you can keep going for as long as you want horizontally, (laughs) (laughs) but not vertically. Or as if, yeah, it's like there's a sort of amount of, I don't know. Gosh, it's as though he's some, yeah, like he's a journalist who has been told, get some rhyming. Yeah. Or it's like some ancient um, like Aramaic rhyme that's been run through Google Translate too <laughs> yeah. many times. Back and forth through, like, Yiddish. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, so in 1880 and 1887, he made enigmatic trips to London and New York. These were both unsuccessful sallies. Enigmatic? Well, they're quite mis- they're shrouded in mystery. Oh. Like, no one really knows why he did it, other than to try and launch himself as a poet, particularly the New York one. No one really knew that he was going to New York. No one kind of understood how he could afford it. Um, Didn't really like it. He said that sailing away from New York, his heart was as light as a cork. That was was the end of a very long New York poem, which I'm not (laughs) going to bother with. Um, His trip to London uh, also produced a very long London poem. Uh, He reflected on the Tower of London in one of them. This is one of my favourites. Kingly Henry VI was murdered there by the Duke of Gloucester. And when he killed him with his sword, he called him an imposter. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah. Th- imposter. <laughs> stop, stop, stop. I don't know. It, yeah, it really feels like he's... Somebody sort of shackled him to these rhyme schemes. Yeah. And he's just sort of fulfilling it. If only he could break out of them. Yeah. Um, for a while, he became a poet in the circus. He travelled with a circus for 15 shillings a night and was pelted with eggs, herring, stale bread and vegetables as he recited his poetry. So, dinner. So, yeah. Well, I mean, he loved this arrangement. He really enjoyed it. uh, And he was dismayed when they cancelled it because they came to Dworkus. So, um, he liked, he really loved the attention. Yeah, or he just loved the 15 shillings a night. I don't know. Yeah. But um, in terms of poet creds, before we actually analyse his poetry, like he has got astonishing poet creds. He is uh he has a sort of Shakespearean delusions, but he also read Shakespeare from a young age. He had a quixotic need for a patron. He made a heroic and stupid um journey. Several to go them. and <laughs> a romantic one to go and perform for his lady. He made these sallies and these adventures. And then he suffered f- under under the um, ire of his public, throwing rotten fish and vegetables at him. Yeah, like his poetry. It's like he's sort of com- filled out the form. Yeah. He also died penniless, which is a good poet thing to do. That's, yeah, a lot of cred. Tennyson didn't die penniless. No. Died penny full. Penny dread. Four. Just leaving us tennyless. <laughs> <laughs> Influence, I only just discovered today, as you heard me shriek, mm-hmm. that um, Spike Milligan made a film oh my called God, The Great McGonagall, which we have to watch. I'm thinking I might do a Life of McGonagall episode because his life just seems so much fun. And I'll watch and that. And so much more interesting than his poetry. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> well, who else within it? Uh, Peter Sellers. 
playing Queen Victoria, no less. <laughs> so I'm definitely going to search this out and let people know where they can find it. Yeah, uh, I hope... I, I did know that Spike Milligan played a character called McGooligan, I think on The Goonies Show and I think elsewhere as well, and it was a send-up of McGonagall. The Goon Show? Yeah, it must have been The Goon Show. Uh, but yeah, um, I knew that bit. I didn't know that he'd made a film. Um, and it is yeah. supposed uh, like a fake biography of McGonagall. Why would you need a fake one? Uh, I, I think because so there's good. so many gaps. Oh, I see. I don't think it's because they needed to shush it up. I think it involves the trip to Balmoral from Dundee. Bridged. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Scots version, just this is more sort of his influence. In the Scots version of the Asterix comics, the village bard is called McGonaglix in McGonaglix. tribute to McGonagall. That's really cute. And yeah, there are there are plaques up to him in Dundee, and I think he's buried in Greyfriars Kirkyard, but all in an unmarked grave. Do all good Scots get buried in Greyfriars? Yeah, apparently all the big ones do. I don't know why he qualified at the time of his death. Was he large? Well, he was penniless, and he died above a pub. Mm. Unfortunately. Finally, McGon. Finally, McGon. <laughs> <laughs> So, as someone has already said, uh, one of those people I quoted, his only real principle of of poetry is rhyme. Well, I suppose if you're if you're if you can class intent as poetic, there's a sort of dedication to big. Yeah, and he was very prolific. He wrote, I think, three hundred ish poems. Yeah. Um, which is quite prolific for someone who starts at fifty. At the expense of his own. Um, career. Yeah, I don't know if like the weaving had dried up, or he just gave, <laughs> he just gave up the weaving. <laughs> or he needed something to put in one of those baskets. I kind of like the idea that he was just sat at his loom when that that. Um... <laughs> or he just had just run out of thread. Yeah. The bobbin rolls across the floor, and he goes, "Ah, yeah, this is what I'll do." He loses his thread, literally. <laughs> um, his yeah, his subjects are ab- abstinence, funerals current events. Those are his big ones. T.S. Eliot. like a terrible Mock the Week episode. <laughs> what links? <laughs> current affairs, death and... Funerals or abstinence. <laughs> um, so, oh yes, T.S. Eliot said the life of verse is contra- contrast between fixity and flux. What does fixity mean? Sort of a rigid frame. I think what he's saying in that phrase is the uh, it lives when you can feel the gaps between something that's rigorously structured and something that suddenly becomes free. Yeah. McGonagall's is very much like, well, no, it has to absolutely rhyme. <laughs> Even if the rhymes don't really work, yeah. that's what you're drawn to because there's nothing else to go at. Yeah. He, he sounds like a bit of a kind of a, mag, a not very discerning magpie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, a, and a magpie that just collects shit. <laughs> yeah. And sort of smears it. <laughs> yeah, it is quite funny the um the website because it, it it arranges all of his poems by subject matter. So you click on geography and you get beautiful Balmerino, beautiful monarchy, beautiful Newport on the braise of the silvery Tay, beautiful Alberfoyle, beautiful Balmoral, beautiful Comrie, beautiful Creef, beautiful Edinburgh, beautiful Nairn, beautiful North Berwick. Beautiful Rothsay, beautiful calendar. Oh no, that's he, Bonnie calendar. Sorry. He does. He does. It's a bit like like um, modern day spoken word. It's a bit like saying, if I say beautiful, it is beautiful. Yes. 
It, it just it, counts. It's a bit like that. It's a bit like, in fact, if that, if that does, I think that's probably the thing that most commends him as a poet is that he really believes in the power of the words on their own. Oh yeah, I know. He really believes in the power of the words. Like, why dress them up? Why give us anything else? <laughs> yeah. Why do anything else but list them? Yeah. <laughs> so do you want to hear his poem on Edinburgh? Yes. Or one of two? Yes. Then, as for Salisbury crags, they are most beautiful to be seen, especially in the month of June when the grass is green. There numerous molehills can be seen. <laughs> the molehills. And the busy little creatures hulking away, searching for worms among the clay. Do you know what hulking means? Hulking. Some kind of digging? I thought it was like spelunking or something. I thought them like <laughs> roped up, like swinging across Goggles the cliffs. On. Yeah. <laughs> And if, with an observant eye, the little lock beneath he scans, he can see the wild ducks about and beautiful white swans. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost as though he doesn't hear it out loud. He just sees it on the page. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Did he, do you think he... Had an ear infection? (laughs) Um, Yeah, or or like, like, did he just sort of look at it? Write the ne- write it down and then not return to it. The thing is, he was a great. He 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 loved performing it. He went and performed in the street. That's how he yes, sold he... his poetry. So he, he was very much a verbal poet, not a spoken so, word poet. Yeah, he was a spoken word poet. Exactly. <laughs> well, nothing has changed in the realm of spoken word. No, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> then, as for Arthur's seat, I'm sure it is a treat. So he didn't even bother going. No, this, this is what I mean. It's, it's, it, uh, it almost sounds like that. That he did the performing first. Yeah. And he came up with it on the spot and then went back and was like, what was it like that again? What was it like? What was it? I can't actually remember Arthur's, Arthur's seat. I'm, I'm sure it was a treat. Yeah, I'm, those gardens fine and neat. Yeah, gardens <laughs> will be fine. Oh, fuck, that's good. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. Who's got a pencil? <laughs> Beautiful city of Edinburgh. Oh, Edinburgh, sorry. <laughs> to, the truth to express, your beauties are matchless, I must confess. At which no one dare gainsay, but that you are the grandest city in Scotland at the present day. <laughs> it's. I think maybe he had some way of performing that it didn't feel that. Or maybe that he did something in his performance where it was kind of funny to keep going. That's true. I, I was trying not to rob it of any of its, what I can only assume is its original power. <laughs> yeah. The mystique. Yeah. But um, you'd have to really work hard to, to make some of those work. What if you sort of paused dramatically between them? And so the audience was kind of hanging on for the Do rhyme. you want me to try that with his other Edinburgh one called Beautiful Edinburgh? Yeah. Wait, what was the other one called? Edinburgh. Oh. And, it's um, so it's gone up in it, his estimation. Well, I, I tried to find the date for this one because Edinburgh was written in 1890. Beautiful Edinburgh, I can't work out if it was before or afterwards. I'm sure with a bit more research I could. But um, did did somebody die? <laughs> I don't know, but you're going to notice some s- similar themes, and you, you'll probably forgive me for confusing them a few times, given that it begins, "Beautiful city of Edinburgh, <laughs> <laughs> most wonderful to be seen, <laughs> with your ancient palace of Holyrood and Queen's Park Green, and your big, magnificent, elegant new college, where people from all nations can be taught knowledge." No, oh. The new College of Edinburgh is certainly very grand, which I consider to be an honour to fair Scotland. 
because it's the biggest in the world without any doubt and is most beautiful in the inside as well as out. It sounds like he hasn't been invited in. And the castle is wonderful to look upon. This is subject matter he's covered already. Yeah. Which has withstood many angry tempests in years bygone. Uh, and the rock it's built upon is rugged and lovely to be seen. And there are moulds spelunking up and down it. <laughs> no, I'm checking. When the shrubberies surround it, surrounding it are blown full green. He did like the shrubbery last time. I was going to say, um, count the shrubberies in the rest of this poem. <laughs> Morningside is lovely and charming to be seen. The gardens there are rich with flowers and shrubberies green. <laughs> Wait, is this, the, is this like the Monty Python shrubbery? Uh, n- no, but Monty Python did a sketch about McGonagall, actually. Did they? Yeah. Well, yeah, but you know the, the Knights of... Shrubberies. Knee. Yeah, maybe they got it from this. Because that's not the last shrubbery in this poem, if memory <laughs> serves. And sweet-scented perfumes fill the air, emanating from the sweet flowers and beautiful plants there. As for Braid Hill, it's a very romantic spot, but a fine place to sit when the weather is hot. <laughs> Strange but there. It becomes a bit sort of Dr. Zeusy, doesn't it? Yeah. But like Dr. Seuss without... There the air is nice and cool, which will help to drive away sorrow when ye view from its summit the beautiful city of Edinburgh. Sorrow and borrow are definitely his... Yeah. In his cap. This is another thing. And as for the statues, they are very... There's all this... And as As for... for, for, It's such a cheat's way of saying... I wish he did this with his love poetry. (laughs) And as for your legs... They're fucking great. (laughs) And as for the statues, they are very grand. They cannot be surpassed in any foreign land. And the scenery is attractive and fascinating to the eye and arrest the attention of tourists as they pass by. Lord Melville's monument is most elegant to be seen, which is situated in St Andrew's Square amongst (laughs) Strawberry's Green. No, it's always to be seen, to be seen. To be seen, yeah. Which seems most gorgeous to the eye because it is towering so very high. The Prince Albert concert statue looks very grand, especially the granite blocks whereon it doth stand, which is admired by all tourists as they pass by because the big granite blocks seem magnificent to the eye. Yeah, magnificent, grand, beautiful. To the eye, big. To the eye. Real sense of to bigness. To be seen. Prince's Street West End Garden is fascinating to be seen <laughs> with, with its beautiful big trees and shrubberies green. <laughs> shrubberies green. And it's, it's as though somebody said, could you? Could you like, okay. It's like the council went, hello, McGonagall. We're from uh, shrubberies.com. <laughs> if you're going to be shouting this shit on the, the street, can you at least work in shrubberies? We're really trying to raise awareness for shrubberies generally. <laughs> Shrubbery care, shrubbery. Yeah. We we do shrubbery care. We we do uh, shrubbery weekends, shrubbery <laughs> tours. We really want to get people thinking shrubbery. We want to get people living shrubbery. I'm looking at your poems. I'm seeing a lot of foliage. <laughs> a lot of lot green. Of verdure. Can we just change those to shrubberies? <laughs> Every single one of those you've got. Every single one, and we'll give you three shillings. Or just a few plant pots. A little home trouble. We'll give you a picket fence. It is magnificent to be seen. Uh, and its magnificent water fountain in the valley below helps to drive away all the tourist from the tourist all care and woe. The Castle Hotel is elegant and grand and students visit it from every foreign land. And the students of Edinburgh often call there 
to rest and have luncheon. It's a very cheap fare. This is a tourist board poem, isn't commission, it? Commission, isn't yeah. it? Queen Street Garden seems charming to the eye, and a very great boon it is to the tenantry nearby. As they walk along the Grand Gravel walks near there. Grand Gravel, that's the only time Grand Gravel has ever appeared in a poem, those two words together. Yeah, Grand but he gravel. seems to be able to put grand in front of anything. Amongst the big trees and, guess? Uh, shrubbery? Shrubbery, <laughs> and inhale the pure air. Then all ye tourists be advised by me. This... Beautiful Edinburgh, ye ought to go and see. It's the only city I know of where ye can while away the time by viewing its lovely scenery and statues fine. It's definitely a tourist con. It's got to be, isn't it? Magnificent city of Edinburgh, I must conclude my muse, but to write in praise of thee I cannot refuse. I will tell the world boldly, without dismay, you have the biggest college in the world at the present day. (laughs) No. Yeah. But really, it sounds like that's just a decoy for the shrubbery business. Really, he's just trying to sell a few shrubberies. (laughs) Of all the cities in the world, Edinburgh for me. For no matter where I look, some lovely spot I see. And for picturesque scenery unrivaled you do stand. Therefore, I pronounce you to be the pride of fair Scotland. Oh. Yeah. I see, I don't know how on earth will you perform that. Yeah, to to any better effect. Mm. Did what? Mm is right. <laughs> what did he? What did this get published in? So um, I think he just performed them, really. So how do we know what they? Because are? when he ran into money trouble, which when... shocker he did, <laughs> um, friends of his rallied round him and got his poems published in order to make him a few bob. Oh, and... Um, in so they were published pe- as Poetic Gems, was the name. Gems. I think there were a few editions in his lifetime, and then they carried on afterwards. Oh, so in his lifetime? Another Shakespearean link, rather like um, Hemmings and uh, Condal, um, the actors in The King's Men who got Shakespeare published after he died. His friends saw that his poem stayed in print. So what were you trying to say? That he is the Scottish Shakespeare. <laughs> oh, silvery day. Oh, silvery day. Magnificent to be seen. Especially in this year. 2019. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there you are. Introduction to William McGonagall. He is the, the original fringe bard. And But shrubbery salesman, I think we should investigate that. I actually think that should be the essay we maybe co-author and send off to the TLS. Yeah. Lots of people have claimed that he was, you know, up to some kind of methodactory trick. Actually... We think he's a shrubbery salesman. A shrubbery highwayman. Yeah. The, no one has <laughs> smuggled that much shrubbery into their verses. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> McGonagall. <laughs> <laughs>